0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom
1: to life on stage. Black History Month is a time we pay tribute to the vast contributions of Black Americans in our country. Carla Hayden, who made history as the first woman and first African-American to lead the Library of Congress, joins the Post to talk about how the past informs our understanding of the present. Let's listen. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robin Gavon, I'm a senior critic at large for the Washington Post. And my guest today is Dr. Carla Hayden. She's the first woman and the first African-American to lead the Library of Congress. The Library of Congress is truly one of the most majestic buildings in the nation's capital. It holds more than 170 million items, including the archive of 23 presidents. It's my
2: great pleasure to
1: welcome Carla Hayden.
2: Thank you. It was something to see in the introduction, Congressman John Lewis, and to think about what he contributed to history and his charge to all of us. And he uh, was such an inspiration uh, for so many, including me.
1: I I absolutely, and I, I wanted to start because we are in Black History Month. And, you know, a lot of comedians often joke that uh, uh, there's Black History Month, but it is the shortest month of the year. And I was hoping you might be able to just give us a little bit of context for why uh, we celebrate in February, sort of origin story, if
2: you will. And I have to smile because I have heard that so many times uh, (laughs) in my own life. And what, this is another example of finding out the history of something. Carter G. Woodson, noted historian, uh, was inspired in 1915 by an exhibition to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And what he felt and saw and knew was that there were so many aspects of African-American Black history that were not discoverable and that were not being presented. And so in 1926, he founded Black History Week. It was a week at first. And the reason why he selected February is because of the birthdays of two significant people, Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. And that's why he selected February. So it was not to shortchange. It was not to <laughs> need. And why did he select those two? What was their significance? They interacted with each other. And so he wanted to bring that to light. And then in 1926, uh, it was expanded. And so it's grown and grown and grown. But that joke is always there.
1: One of the things that is always
2: uh, intriguing to me
1: is balance between celebrating a particular community's history, but also making it clear that that history is is also American history, that it is our shared history. How do you see that balance being played out in the work that the Library of Congress does?
2: One of the aspects of having a month to highlight something makes it seem as though that's the only time you can examine that history and that it's uh, separated from history throughout the year and the library of congress as other institutions have tried to do too was devoted to making sure that there's an american story and many stories and histories that have to be uh, collected and so for instance W.E.B. Du Bois in 1900, the Library of Congress collected his charts and graphs that he used for an exhibition. So, this aspect of making sure that the history of different groups is woven in any history you tell. Women's suffrage, the library just did a big exhibit on women's suffrage, and throughout that history was the aspect of Civil rights and the fact that there were groups of women of color who were not included in women's suffrage.
0: One
1: of the things that you have often uh, said or quoted was, um, or is a line from Frederick Douglass: "Once you learn to read,
0: you will be." And was
1: that one of the the I guess, uh, uh, quotations that brought you into the world of of libraries. And uh, sort of the second part of that question is you also have said that you you come from a group of people who were forbidden by law uh, to learn to read. So that's that's such a powerful statement. And to see you where you are now, how do all those things sort of converge in, your mind as you think about the work that you do,
2: and you can see I get animated when I hear that quote again. And just what prompted Frederick Douglass to say that? Because there were laws in almost every state that forbid, forbid slaves from learning to read. And why was that? Because once you learn to read, you can read. About people being freed in the Bible. That was a big conflict. Okay, they wanted slaves to to learn to read, to read the Bible so they, you know, learn about the afterlife so that their conditions where they are now, you know, don't worry, go to heaven. But then they found that, oh, wow, they could read about, uh, let my people go. So maybe we'll have, and there's a Bible that is a condensed version for colored people as they, uh, Recalled the there's a wonderful quote in the book the history of reading by alberto Manguel, and it's in a chapter called forbidden reading and the photograph starting that uh, chapter has a woman who's outside of a shack you could tell she probably was a former slave and she has a book And what he says is that as dictators, slaveholders, and other illicit owners of power have known, an illiterate crowd is the easiest to rule. And if you cannot prevent people from learning to read, the next best recourse is to limit its scope. And then he goes on about book burning and censorship and all of these things. So, reading, and that has been a gateway for me and so many other people to open up windows to other places, times, to give you an opportunity to go beyond your current conditions and to find hope in history. That's one of my favorite uh, things that I hold dear, that there's hope in history.
1: When you talk about reading and, and uh, education and the power of that, Uh, You know, I'm reminded that so often there is this sort of uh, stubborn trope that uh, African Americans don't value education as much as others, some communities. I mean, how do you wrestle with that? And, um, you know, and what would you say in terms of, you know, that existing trope and the history that exists? Um, And that is
2: on display at the Library of Congress. And I'm getting uh, animated again because part of that history goes back to being forbidden to read or learn to read and having uh, laws that said if a slave was caught learning to read or reading your fingers could be amputated, you could be beaten, it listed, some states listed how many uh, whips you'd get and people who would teach the slaves to read were punished. And so think about the culture of that time that the elders or people who were other slaves, if they caught, if they saw someone learning to read, don't do that, don't do that. That, that hesitancy with literacy, Uh, Started back in slavery in many ways, and that push and pull. There was also a time uh, that a trope of uh, Black people don't read, and publishers had to realize that maybe if you publish things that reflected their culture and experiences, people would read, give them something that they would want to read. And Terry McMillan, uh, the fiction writer, broke through that for publishing when she put out her books and people were just reading and eating it up. So that, the Library of Congress is doing it too. Yeah, so the Library of Congress has been doing that in presenting history, like the Rosa Parks exhibit. But that idea that uh, Black people in particular don't want to read or learn is false.
0: How does that play into
1: the importance of, uh, acknowledge, of recognizing who is telling the history? Um, you know, they often say that, you know, the, the victor, history is written by the victorious. So, you I know, mean, how important is it to make sure that all these different stories are told, particularly where we are now um, in the culture as so much is changing?
2: And the importance of being able to tell your own story from your own perspective has been aligned through historiography, the technical term for the writing of history, who gets to write the history, who has the mechanisms to publish. And so with the new technologies that we have now, there are so many ways, and that's what the Library of Congress is working on now, through a wonderful grant from the Mellon Foundation, uh, led by Elizabeth Alexander, who's a poet herself, and just understands the importance of providing opportunities for people to tell their own stories. Because you can have nuances uh, in how an event is portrayed in history. Is it a riot? Is it a this? We're going through that now. How do you? use terms to describe an event in history? And, or do you actually downplay that and not even talk about it? The Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma history is one that has really gotten a lot of attention because of how it's told.
1: I mean, when you talk about, uh, you know, being able to tell your story and considering the kinds of Language that's used to tell the story, you know. Some people feel that that starts to get into this realm of political correctness, that uh, you know, words have to be chosen to sort of uh, soothe the the ego or the sensitivities of of other people. I mean, can you tease out a little bit the difference between this idea of sort of reflexive uh, political correctness and the idea that history has many facets, it has many nuances. And depending on what side of a story you're on, it's a different story. What's a different part that, of
2: the story? It's a different part of the story. And that's why you need to turn it around and look at it from so many angles. So you have an event, but what was the five-year-old who is still living uh, thinking? and what led up to them looking out of a window and seeing uh, people with guns coming after them, but also what did they hear at the table and all of these types of things. So getting as many viewpoints and opening up the discussion about it and taking it away. And that's what the Library of Congress, other cultural institutions, and we're all trying to provide a space, a safe space, a trusted space for people to examine history, the monuments, what all of that discussion. What, let's step back and see how we got here. History provides context. And if you have these different viewpoints, you might have that empathy or at least understand that it's not a simple straight line. There were a lot of things that led to where we are now.
1: How how is the library uh, bringing in um, the the, the papers, the stories uh, from, you know, not just this past year, but just in recent years uh, with the racial justice um, uh, protests, racial injustice protests um, and all the things that have been going on with, you know, Confederate Confederate flags um, at the U.S. Capitol? How is the the Library of Congress
2: assembling or grappling with this very recent history? Well, right now, we have librarians who have been working with people who have been involved with the different movements and especially helping them chronicle uh, and make sure that there's a record of, for instance, the posters and the different things that were posted on the fence in Black Lives, on Black Lives Matter Plaza. And so the librarians are uh, taking photographs, making sure that things are preserved. And we have over 30 posters and artifacts from Minneapolis, San Francisco, New York, other places, and just making sure that we are looking at contemporary history being made the same way that the Library of Congress did with women's suffrage. One of my predecessors in uh, 1897 was a contemporary of Susan B. Anthony, and a neighbor and knew that what Susan B. Anthony was doing and with the organizations might be important to look at later. And that's what's happening now. So the Library of Congress, Howard University is involved. The Smithsonian is involved. We're all, National Park Service, all working together to make sure that there is going to be a tangible record and a digital record. Because that's where the challenge is now, too. So many things are being created digitally and are born digital
1: yeah I mean how much of the you know of social media the world of Twitter and Instagram and all of that
2: I mean how much of that can be captured uh, by the library You have to work with the companies. the library was involved with Twitter very early on when it was starting out with the arab Spring and and all of that and knew that something was going on that there was similar to those other social movements because the library has the Archive of the NAACP and the Legal Defense Fund and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating, all of these organizations, so that they knew that. However, that did transition into more of a platform for general uh, uh, things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what did you? lunch or what did you have for lunch and so then that's because so you capture and those those early days of twitter are captured in time and working with the company to uh look at access for someone 50 years from now you know how did twitter start how did that do and so the most exciting and i have to say this uh, one of the most exciting positions in the library world now is in collection development is what we call it What are you collecting now that a historian like uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin or uh, someone that is John Hope Franklin, what would he have looked at? And what will they look at 50 years from now, a hundred years from now? And what, what, what is that? And that's, that's really exciting because you're in the moment, but you're also looking to the future.
1: How does the the world of disinformation play into the collection of of information and fact and truth um, that the library holds? Um, I mean, we are in a period when, um, you know, people are having a real difficult time, actually, uh, understanding what's what's fact and what is fiction. how how does that play into both the collection and the way in which uh, the library engages as a cultural institution?
2: The Library of Congress, like other libraries and museums, is committed to being a trusted source, uh, that a nonpartisan, uh, partisan, objective source of information, and if you keep that as your guiding Principle, It allows you to have a certain remove from the passions of the moment and to present information and vet information and look at the source of the information. And that's what's so important. Where is this information coming from? And even if you collect it and there, you look at the provenance of the information. Before you say this is what happened,
0: what,
1: one of the things that you mentioned before, uh, just as we were uh, chatting earlier, was the way in which uh, our history is taught in schools, and how, you know, in the past, the, often the only time uh, black history came up was in the chapter on slavery. Are, are we getting better? at teaching the full breadth of history
2: in schools, particularly in elementary and high schools? We're so much better. And even in my lifetime, I've seen a difference. When I was in grammar school and even high school, that was just the beginning. Back when I was in grammar school, there was nothing except that unit. And I shared with you that my mother, who is 89, would ask her mother if she could stay home when they got to the Civil War because she knew that that was when they were going to talk about slavery. And she said she was ashamed because that was the only time someone that looked like her was even mentioned throughout the school year in history. So we have made progress, but there's so much more to do. There is uh, an effort and part of the what the Library of Congress is doing with that wonderful Mellon grant four year grant to offer uh, opportunities for underrepresented communities to mine the library's collections but also to document their histories and tell their stories and to use the newest technologies to do it paid internships for uh, students as well and so just a little plug there's a blog that tells all about it because we want to get people to see themselves in the stories that are being told it's something when you have to stay at home because you know that that's the only time that you will be mentioned
1: yeah i mean i'm it, it seems like we uh, as a culture have a very difficult time grappling with um the dark parts of our history. And, and even now we like to uh, sort of quickly move on um, from uh, events, from things that have had uh, a historical impact. Is Do you see part of the library's mission uh, in forcing us, pushing us to slow down and to consider and sort of sit in uh, our feelings,
2: our concerns, just sort of sit with the fact for a while. And it, it's so important to present the information and to talk about why did some, for instance, when you talk about slavery, talk about all of the aspects of it, the, the rebellions, the quiet rebellions that were going on, the difference in the field slaves and the, uh, the slaves that were in the Big house, but how they work together, and the the messages in the spirituals, the Negro spirituals, as they were called before, uh, all of these things. But to embrace in a way the the history, the pain, and to look at there's another spiritual. How we got over, it. you know, how did you survive? What happened? There's hope in history. So by dealing with the bad parts and the good parts, we talked about uh, even in families sometimes that happens. So if we're a big family with all types uh, in that family, we need to address those difficult parts as well so we can move forward. There's still gonna be more, but we have to look at the history and know that there were those times. One of, the, one of the lovely parts of recent history was
1: uh, Amanda Gorman at the inauguration. I know that you have met her when she was quite young, um, or younger, I should say. She's still quite young. I, I was, and I, and I was hoping that you could talk a bit about um, the power of poetry, which really seemed to touch people in such a profound way and express things that perhaps they didn't even really quite know that they were
2: feeling. And that's why the Library of Congress started the uh, Poet Laureate Program and cooperates with the Youth Laureate Program that Amanda uh, Gorman was part of, and that's what you saw. Tracy K. Smith, the uh, Poet Laureate, was right in the middle because of the power of words. Uh, being able to put things in a simple way and directly to people and to bring out the emotion. And for instance, uh, Tracy uh, was able to go to rural communities and help challenge communities and challenge situations, use poetry as a way to express what they were feeling or to Imagine something that they never, if you had to read an entire book maybe, but a poem can capture you and capture you quickly. And our current um, poet Lloyd, uh, Jory Harjo, is doing the same thing in terms of Native communities. So using poetry as a voice. Jason Reynolds, the youth ambassador, uses poetry as well. And so there's a gateway to feeling through poetry.
1: Do you see a connective thread between the artistry of a poet and a, the the artistry of someone like um, Cicely Tyson, who recently oh.
2: passed away? Yes, there's a direct line because you you need people who can also express it and perform it. And the power of Cicely Tyson and what she represented. She made. Uh, characters come alive and she made you care. Plus, she was an activist as well. And we have that when we think about other ways that people have been able to express themselves through music, through art. These are all ways and avenues for people to get to history and emotion. Everybody has a different way of connecting. And we have to present different ways for people to be touched.
1: And I think the last question, I think that I probably have time for um, is just a bit of a personal prying question. Uh, It being Black History Month, is, is there any one or two or three people from history that have particularly inspired you or whose story you feel a
2: particular uh, kindred kindred to. Ida B Wells uh, was a journalist, historian, and activist and I have to put up her picture I have a library and art uh she doesn't receive as much attention but she's so inspiring because she knew that the power of the word would help in advancing uh, things and also There's, I have to go back to Frederick Douglass because he knew the power of reading and knowledge and opening up that for everyone and what that can do. So those two people uh, have been inspirational to me beyond the mentors I've had and things like that, but also those two historic figures.
1: Well, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. That's unfortunately all the time that we have. But I thank you for being with me this afternoon. Thank and you. And if, if you have enjoyed our Race in America series, I encourage you to uh, please subscribe to About Us. It's the twice-weekly newsletter uh, from the Washington Post that focuses on race and identity. And I'm Robin Gabon. and thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.